Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Conversations About PAH, Latest Developments and Key Insights for 2023, Foundational Activity, is provided by AKH and supported by an independent medical education grant from Merck Sharp and Dome Corporation, a subsidiary of Merck and Company Incorporated. This replay of a live broadcast focuses on key insights about pulmonary arterial hypertension, PAH. Now, here's your moderator, Dr. Jennifer Cottle. Hello, I'm Dr. Jennifer Cottle, and I'd like to welcome Dr. McLaughlin and Dr. Chanik to the program. They're joining me to share recent evidence that supports using novel agents for PAH. As part of the discussion, they will also discuss how you can optimize PAH treatment plans and integrate the latest guideline recommendations in your practice. Uh, so welcome to the program, Dr. McLaughlin and Dr. Chanik. Thank you, Dr. Cottle. Thanks. Please note that our disclosures are available to you on the event page. You'll have the chance also to claim credit by completing an evaluation after participating in the course. To submit questions during the presentation, please type them into the chat control panel on the left side throughout the program. We'll try to answer as many questions as we can during the time allotted. So let's begin. Dr. McLaughlin, how is PAH classified? Great, thank you so much, Dr. Cottle. If we could move to the next slide, it gives the current classification system for pulmonary hypertension or high blood pressure in the lungs. Group one is pulmonary arterial hypertension, what, really, what we are really going to focus on for much of our time today. But that's a very rare disease, and we more commonly see other types of pulmonary hypertension. Group two pulmonary hypertension associated with left heart disease is actually the type of pulmonary hypertension that probably all of us see the most. Whether there's LV systolic dysfunction or diastolic dysfunction or valvular heart disease, when the left heart filling pressures are elevated, they get transmitted to the lungs and can cause pulmonary hypertension. Group three pulmonary hypertension is also very common, and that's associated with lung disease or hypoxemia. So IPF, COPD, any sort of lung disease that causes hypoxemia can cause a modest amount of pulmonary hypertension. Group four pulmonary hypertension is associated with pulmonary artery obstruction. So that's most commonly chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. So as we all know, PEs are common and most of the time the PEs get resolved, but in a few percent of patients, you can have chronic scarring and narrowing of the pulmonary vasculature from pulmonary emboli that do not entirely resolve. And then group five is pulmonary hypertension with unclear or multifactorial mechanisms. And this is really a potpourri of disorders, glycogen storage disorders, sarcoidosis, some of the anemias that can cause pulmonary hypertension via unclear or, or multifactorial mechanisms. Thank you so much for that discussion. Dr. Chanik, we'll move to you. Uh, the ESC-ERS guidelines for the diagnosis and treatment of pulmonary hypertension were updated in 2022. What are the key messages in the 2022 update? Yeah, thanks uh, Thanks for the question. Um, actually, several things. I think this is a, a sort of an important document. If we can go to the next slide, maybe the most uh, provocative and, and, and um, significant change was this change to the definition shown on this slide. And as you can see here, there's a, num a lot of numbers on here, but when we define pulmonary arterial hypertension or pulmonary hypertension for that matter, 
It's now recommended that a mean pressure over 20, or at least 20 millimeters of mercury defines that condition. And that's based on pretty good data that our old number of 25 was probably too high. You can see, in addition, there's been a really significant change with the European guidelines, which is this PVR cutoff of two wood units, where traditionally it's been three wood units. And that's based on some data suggesting that patients who have a PVR even as low as you know two to three may have a higher mortality or worse outcomes. Now there's some issues with that data. It's a lot of, there are a lot of reasons why these patients could have mild pulmonary hypertension, but it was felt that that was enough data to change this recommendation. And then finally, the, the definition of exercise pH has kind of come back into the definition where previously that was not. And now the European guidelines do um, list exercise pulmonary hypertension and you can see there the definition of a pressure to flow slow for change in pressure to change in flow from rest to exercise being greater than three, um, defining exercise-induced pH. So those are some of the changes to the definition. If we go to the next slide, we can um, see the, the, make some general points about the diagnostic approach. You know, you know we, there's a lot involved in the diagnostic approach, but this slide, um, from the guidelines really, I think, outlines that early referral, you see in the bottom square to the expert center and the so-called fast tracking of some patients who are really ha have um, significant uh, clinical suspicion for pulmonary hypertension is really important. Um, short of that though, there are some additional tests, of course, many of which we've, we've always done to work up pulmonary hypertension. And that's kind of laid out a little bit more in the next slide. Um, which talks about the various testing that's done from echo to routine pulmonary function and chest scanning to ventilation perfusion scanning, which remains the test of choice for excluding chronic thromboemboli, the need for right heart catheterization, and then additional lab tests to try to confirm why a patient may have PAH. So a lot of this is familiar from previous algorithms, but uh, some of those points about early referral to expert centers and thinking about the common stuff is it continues to be in the guidelines. And then finally, on the next slide, um, there's a discussion. This just calls out that the BQ scan is really necessary for excluding that diagnosis of chronic thromboembolic disease. And then on the, the next slide, it just refers to the, the, the details of right heart catheterization and some of the numbers and cutoffs that we look at. Next slide. There is a, a, a comment about screening. And so the guidelines do suggest that we screen certain high-risk populations like connective tissue disease, congenital heart disease, portal hypertension for pulmonary hypertension. So that's really emphasizes this early diagnosis and even screening before symptoms in certain populations. So that's sort of some of the some of the highlights. Excellent. Thank you so much for that that overview. You know, Dr. McLaughlin, why don't we go back to you? How is PAH differentiated from other types of pulmonary hypertension? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think we've talked a little bit about the classification and the diagnosis, but let's just take a step back and look at what happens pathophysiologically. And if we could go to the next slide, we see on the left a normal pulmonary arteriole that has a very thin intima media and adventitia. And of course, as we have naturally occurring 
compounds that help vasodilate and vasoconstrict, you know, there's an equilibrium, there's a balance in a normally functioning pulmonary arterial. And then what happens with pulmonary arterial hypertension is there is an imbalance, there's more vasoconstriction and proliferation, as well as less relaxation. And there's also inflammation and cellular growth, such that you start to see intimal proliferation and smooth muscle cell hypertrophy and lack of apoptosis. So really just overgrowth of the pulmonary vasculature and narrowing of the lumen of those pulmonary arterioles. And then you have an increase in the pulmonary vascular resistance. If you can advance the slide, please. What happens once the pulmonary vascular resistance starts to go up is that very thin right ventricle, that right ventricle that's meant to pump against a very low pressure, low resistance circuit starts to have to overwork and you get RVH and you get pressure and volume overload of the right side. It increases the wall stress, can even impact the interaction of the intraventricular septum and the flow of the right and left ventricles. And then if you advance, really what happens is this can ultimately cause right ventricular failure. And this all contributes to the common symptoms that the patient has, as well as the physical exam findings. Thank you for that. For those of you who are just joining us, this is ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Cottle, and joining me to talk about PAH are Drs. McLaughlin and Chanik. I'd like to encourage our viewers to submit questions for them as we go through the presentation. So Dr. Chanik, back to you. Uh, what are the current guideline recommendations for the management of PAH? Um, thank you. Um, if we could have the slide, there's you know a lot, and Dr. McLaughlin and I have both been involved in this field for quite a long time and really have seen the development of all the therapies we now have. This is ex extremely exciting um, up and more to come. So currently we, we target three different pathways, as you can see on this slide, the prostacycline pathway, the endothelin pathway, and the nitric oxide pathway. And these are targeted therapies that are aimed at either increasing or, or replacing prostacycline, blocking the effects of endothelin, and augmenting, enhancing the effects of nitric oxide, and restoring that balance between the vasoconstrictive proliferative mediators and the, and the vasodilating antiproliferative. And that's really where we've been at with therapy. And you can see on the bottom, the various treatment options. So we have a number of prostacycline pathway drugs that are either analogs of prostacycline or in the case of, of one drug, Selexapag actually binds and, and um, enhances the IP receptor, it's an agonist. And then we have three uh, endothelin receptor antagonists that bind to either one or both of the endothelin receptors. And then in the nitric oxide pathway, we have drugs um, that either are PD5 inhibitors that like sildenafil, tadalafil, and then drug one drug, Riosigwat, which um, stimulates guanylate cyclase, so directly increases cyclic GMP. So, so all of these drugs um, are FDA approved and have been shown in pretty robust studies over time to, to be efficacious. Excellent. And Dr. McLaughlin, what are some common adverse events of PAH-specific therapies? Yeah, it's a great question because as we treat patients, our goal is to make them feel better, to improve the symptoms of the disease, but we have to balance that with the side effects of the drugs, and that can be quite complex. 
this slide summarizes some of the side effects from the medications that Dr. Chanik reviewed. And I just want to reiterate, we are so grateful to have so many medications for pulmonary arterial hypertension, most of which have been approved just in the past 25 years or so. So starting from the left, the endothelin receptor antagonists, these are oral agents that Dr. Chanik has already reviewed, and they're generally pretty well tolerated, although sometimes we see anemia, and so this needs to be monitored for with blood tests periodically, as well as elevated LFTs. They can cause some fluid retention, and of course, right heart failure and fluid retention is common in, in these patients, and so this needs to be monitored carefully as well. And these agents have embryo-fetal toxicity, and so they should not be, or they should be used carefully rather in women of childbearing potential. And we need to get pregnancy tests on those patients as we administer those drugs. The PDE5 inhibitors, again, are very potent vasodilators, and they can cause side effects such as nasal congestion, headaches, um, gastroesophageal reflux from relaxing smooth muscle as well. The prostacyclin pathway agents as a class have a number of side effects that are associated with vasodilatation, such as flushing and headache, some more unusual side effects like jaw pain. The patients describe pain in their jaw, like biting into the, a lemon, the very first bite of a meal, and then it goes away as they choose. You can have more chronic side effects like bone pain. But then we also have the side effects associated with the route of administration. The most potent of the prostacyclins are delivered on a continuous IV or sub-Q basis. And so to be on a continuous IV infusion of this very potent medication, you need to have a chronic central venous catheter. And of course, you're then at risk for line infections. And in fact, rebound pulmonary hypertension if for some reason the line comes out. Um, to obviate the need for continuous IV infusion, there's also a prostacyclin that's delivered on a subcutaneous continuous basis, much like insulin can be in some patients. But in about 85% of the patients, there is pain or erythema at the site of the subcutaneous infusion. And we certainly have nurses that spend a lot of time on the phone with our patients helping to manage the site pain and the other side effects. And then there are inhaled prostacyclin pathway agents, and any inhaled drug can often cause a cough. So we see that sometimes. And then there are the SGC stimulators. They also work on the nitric oxide pathways and so have many of the same side effects as the PD-5 inhibitors do. They tend to have a little bit more of an impact on blood pressure and um, rarely can cause syncope, but also cause dyspepsia, headache. Um, and lower extremity edema, and they also have embryo-fetal toxicity. So monitoring of a patient with childbearing potential is important as well. Thank you for that. And Dr. Chanik, how has the treatment paradigm evolved in PAH? Yeah, it's, it's actually evolved quite, quite dramatically over the past several years, if we could have the slide up. Um, very simply, you know, when we started with the first drug approved, there wasn't a whole you know, the strategy was to use that drug. And once we started getting all these drugs, then it became very important to understand how we use them together. And so, you know, initially as drugs came on board, we were talking about sequential therapy. So you start with drug A, you assess the patient, then add the second drug, and in some cases, the third drug, as if patients were not um, achieving what we, you wanted them to. And, and that you know may for some cases still be the, the paradigm, but I think we've really evolved to this concept of upfront combination therapy. So we're starting 
in most cases, two drugs up front, um, and then maybe adding a third drug. There's also, as, as you'll see, some evidence for efficacy of starting three drugs up front. So this concept of upfront combination therapy really has taken hold in, and is really you know, codified in, in a number of different guidelines or algorithms that for most patients, we're starting two drugs up front. So that's, I think, a big evolution in how we've, how we've approached. It's really focusing on treatment strategy. Excellent. And really quite interesting. Right. You know, Dr. McLaughlin, taking that sort of a step further, what's the role for triple therapy in treatment-naive patients? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think there's a couple parts to this answer. One is that the sickest patients, the patients at very high risk, generally accepted that they need triple therapy that includes a parenteral prostanoid. But for the rest of the patients, the question is, should a less invasive type of triple therapy be considered? And Rich referenced one of the trials back in the around 2015 time era that demonstrated upfront combination therapy with ERNA and PD-5 is better than one or the other alone. So then the next question is, well, are three drugs better than two? And so that led to the Triton trial, which was a phase, um, actually phase four randomized double-blind um, placebo-controlled trial uh, that looked at initial triple combination therapy with macetatin tadalafil and selexapag, which is a prostacyclin pathway agonist, versus initial double therapy with macetatin tadalafil and placebo in newly diagnosed treatment-naive patients. Now, this study really was kind of a, an, an exploratory study, really looking at pulmonary vascular resistance at week 26. And on the next slide, you'll see that both groups, the triple therapy group and the double therapy group, had marked improvements in the pulmonary vascular resistance greater than 50% after 26 weeks of therapy, but there was no difference between the two groups. There were also marked improvements in the six-minute hall walk, over 55 meters in both groups, and again, no difference between the groups. So really, both the double therapy and the triple therapy groups had substantial benefits over the 26 weeks. So, but there were no difference between the groups. Now there was an exploratory analysis and you know, just to be scientifically accurate, this needs to be interpreted with caution because the primary endpoint was neutral. The trial did not meet the primary endpoint. And so anything else is really just hypothesis generating rather than solid evidence. But in the exploratory analysis, there was a little signal for improved long-term outcomes in patients who received triple combination therapy versus patients who received double combination therapy. Excellent. And Dr. Chanik, what are the treatment goals in PAH? Um, if we go to the slide, there's, there's actually, um, a, a, again, a big evolution in this, in this area. And, and the whole concept that we have well-defined treatment goals, I think is a big development. Um, this is a sort of a busy slide, but you know, I think this concept of really improving a patient to what we call low risk. And you can see in this pretty busy table, all the different parameters we may look at when we, uh, when we start treatment on a patient or treatment regimen, and then as we follow those patients. And getting a patient into that low risk or green area, I think is, is really critical for not just for improving prognosis, but for actually 
improving how they feel because many of these parameters like functional capacity, walk distance are really quality of life type measures in terms of how a patient feels and functions. Um, and so these are, these are all parameters that we measure regularly and whether it's subjective things like functional class all the way up to very detailed imaging of the right ventricle. These are things that have been laid out um, as important things to follow um, and, and making changes in our therapy to meet those goals. The other thing I wanna point out is that we use what we call uh, really four risk strata. Uh, traditionally in the past, it's been three, um, but it, it turns out that many patients on treatment still are in what we call intermediate risk. And, and because of that, um, it was sort of just separated into low and higher intermediate in some analyses that are shown to be pretty discriminating and, and really helps us and helps make treatment decisions of a patient, for instance, in low intermediate versus high intermediate, that may lead to very different changes in treatment. Dr. McLaughlin, did you wanna jump in with any, um, with any comments? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we've learned so much about risk stratification over the past decade or so. And I, I really love the refinements that have recently been made to the risk stratification methods to divide that intermediate risk group up into low and high. And it's very easy to do. I, I really want to emphasize how important it is to do that every time you see a patient. To, to do this, all you need are three measures, which we generally get in clinic when we see patients. It's a functional class. So we talk to them, we assess their functional class. Uh, it's a hall walk. We generally do six-minute hall walks. And then the biomarkers as well, the NT pro BNP or the BNP. And we actually now have a little smart phrase. We have a little flow sheet tool that we put that information in. And we actually generate that at the bottom of the note, like what their score is and what category they fall into. And as Dr. Chanik said, it really makes counseling the patient much, much more gratifying because you can give them a clear expectation of their risk and talk about why they do or don't need other therapies. But on the other hand, it's just, it's one part. I think it's also important to consider the patient's comorbidities, their right ventricular function. There are other things that go into how we treat patients as well. Excellent. Okay, and moving on, uh, as a reminder, we do encourage you to submit questions for the faculty. Uh, so to submit questions during this presentation, please type them into the chat control panel on the left-hand side throughout the program. We certainly will try to answer as many of your questions as we can uh, during our time allotted. So moving forward, um, Dr. McLaughlin, what are some new and emerging therapeutic targets for PAH? Well, Dr. Cottle, I have to say, it's such an exciting time for research in pulmonary arterial hypertension. Rich, um, Dr. Chanik kind of outlined the three pathways that we've targeted for many years. But every time I explain that to, to an audience, I always say that's just the tip of the iceberg. We talk about those three pathways because those are the ones we understand. And those are the ones that we can currently target with FDA approved therapies. But there's so much more to pulmonary arterial hypertension than just those three pathways. And you can see on this slide, there are a number of pathways that are dysfunctional or dysregulatory in pulmonary arterial hypertension that we maybe don't understand or that we can't yet target, but it's an exciting time in research. There are a number of trials going on with pathways that we currently know, but we're trying to make delivery uh, or side effects a little bit easier for the patient. So other prostacyclin pathway agonists like ronalopeg, there's a trial going on, other types of inhaled triprostol that might make um, administration a little bit easier. 
but there are new pathways that are being studied. Many moons ago, we studied imatinib for pulmonary arterial hypertension and the trial demonstrated efficacy, but it wasn't well tolerated in the oral formulation. So there are a couple of different formulations of inhaled imatinib so that we can perhaps give lower doses directly to the lung and target the disease without causing side effects. So that's, that's a really exciting potential. There are other kinase inhibitors, serolutinib that are being studied. And then probably the most exciting thing right now is cetatercept. And speaking of cetatercept, Dr. Chanik, let's go back to you. Uh, cetatercept is a promising new drug that is in a novel drug class for group one PAH. How does this novel treatment um, uh, pathways for PAH differ from current therapies? Yeah, no, I, I would certainly agree that this is a very exciting agent um, with pretty strong data that I'll, I'll discuss in a second. Um, very simply, it's it's a drug that's a um, what we call an activin. It works in the activin um, pathway. Activin is a, a molecule that um, is part of what we call the TGF beta, and the bottom line is that that mediates a lot of growth and proliferation downstream. So this drug specifically. Um, um, eats up the activin, if you will, and, and hopefully prevents it from doing or mediating those kind of effect, downstream effects. And it turns out that that, in fact, is likely a benefit. And so we have now um, recently a phase three study called Stellar that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine um, just very recently, which looked at patients who are already on background therapy, stable, um, but still symptomatic, who are then randomized to cetatercept, which is a subcutaneous injection every three weeks, with the primary endpoint being improvement in the six-minute walk test. And the, the results in that, if you can, you can show on the next slide, was, you know, quite striking. So cetatercept indeed did improve six-minute walk distance significantly compared to placebo. And again, these are in patients who, in many cases, have very long-standing pulmonary arterial hypertension already maintained on, in some cases, very aggressive background therapy, including parenteral prostacycline in about 40% of patients. In addition, um, and this is very reassuring, there were a number of secondary endpoints that were also improved um, from, and you can see the list there, from pulmonary vascular resistance, functional class, um, time to worsening, so delay in clinical worsening, uh, a combined parameter of improvement, in fact, was also significantly infected, affected the risk score, the French risk score. You can see the, the some of the quality of life measures as well were improved. So very consistent data, both from the primary and secondary endpoints for this drug. Very exciting indeed. Yeah. Dr. McLaughlin, what is the potential impact of these novel treatment pathways and new emerging therapeutic targets for PAH? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, again, we're so thankful to have all the therapies that we have, and they have made a tremendous difference, but yet we still lose far too many patients to this disease. You know, we, we still are having patients who don't respond, have poor quality of life, you know, higher mortality rates, despite these aggressive therapies. And so targeting new pathways and potentially pathways that don't just relax the blood vessels, cause vasodilatation, but help rebalance the proliferation and the apoptosis, you know, really potentially causing reverse remodeling may have the potential to really impact the course of the disease in many patients. Excellent. 
Um, thank you both uh, for this segment of the program. We are now moving into our Q&A section of the program. We have many questions that have come in from our audience. We thank you for that. Um, so let's just jump right in and start with our first question. Um, what is your, the question states, what is your recommendation for dealing with an overweight patient who has diabetes and PAH? Uh, which, who, who would like to take that, Dr. Chanik or Dr. McLaughlin? You know, I can start with it and let Rich chime in. I think it goes back to making the correct diagnosis. I think Rich so eloquently went through the diagnostic algorithm, and we have to consider different types of pulmonary hypertension and different patients. And one type of patients that I feel like I see a lot these days are, are patients who perhaps they have high pulmonary pressures, but they have many risk factors for diastolic heart failure and consequently group two pulmonary hypertension. So an obese patient with diabetes may have diastolic heart failure and may have pulmonary venous hypertension or group two pulmonary hypertension. So I think it's really critical to go through that diagnostic algorithm and really determine the type of pulmonary hypertension that they have. And if indeed it's group two, the treatment is very different. The treatment is sodium restriction, diuretics, management of risk factors, weight loss, perhaps SGLT2 inhibitors. So I, I think to answer that question properly, we need a good diagnosis. Mm. I would certainly agree with that. And completely, as Val said, that's a very common scenario. One of the things, though, that's come up is this concept of, you know, can a group one patient have comorbidities? Um, and th that would include some things like diabetes, hypertension, um, obesity, obviously being part of that. And this is where you have that kind of gray area or the overlap between, let's say, a patient who in fact does have PAH in our judgment, but also has some of these comorbidities like obesity. And that's where the, the challenge comes in. And certainly, I wouldn't write those patients all off as having group two PAH, um, but even when we're we're making a diagnosis of PAH, we may need a little more caution in some of those patients. And this is actually a somewhat and get balanced thought of sort of a hot button topic of, you know, do we treat those patients with comorbidities and group one PAH differently, like more cautiously, one drug, that kind of thing. Yeah, and and but I think it also comes back to having the the characteristics of the patients and having the hemodynamics. So the patient that Dr. Cottle described, the patient who has obesity and diabetes, you know, what does her echo look like? Is her right ventricle normal in function or is it dysfunctional? When you cath her, is her PVR 3.2 or is it seven? You know, so I think you need to answer that particular question, placing in context the number and severity of the comorbidities as well as the severity of the pulmonary vascular disease. So if she's in that former category where her right ventricle is normal and you catheter and her wedge is you know, 14 because she's NPO and, and the PBR is 3.5, you know, I would be more gingerly in that person. Whereas if she has right ventricular dysfunction and her PBR is 7, 8, you know, that to me is a patient with PAH and who just happens to have diabetes or obesity, which are common in our country. And I would treat that patient more aggressively. Mm -hmm. 
Fair enough. Thank you both. And just moving forward, I would love if both of you could chime in on the, uh, the on the answers to these questions because you're you're so ec excellent providing great insight. So uh, moving to the next question we've received, um, this question asks, what is the role of multidisciplinary care teams in managing patients with PAH and how can healthcare providers optimize collaboration to improve patient outcomes? Who would like to start with this? I'm, I'm happy to. I mean, um... There, there's a huge role for multidisciplinary teams. This is a, this is a, it takes a village type of situation to manage a pulmonary hypertension patient, not just the medical part of it, but all the other aspects of dealing with a chronic disease require, you know, from case managers to our nursing uh, people, you know, palliative care is, plays a huge role now in, in symptom management for our patients. You heard from Val about all the side effects of the drugs and then some of the difficulties. And then within the medical group, uh, these patients have multi-system disease. I mean, they have heart disease, lung disease, sometimes kidney disease, sometimes liver disease. So, so all of those specialists are involved in the care of our patients. Yeah, I would echo that. And, you know, also sometimes they need transplant, right? So then we're involving whole transplant teams or or, um, you know, we work with rheumatologists because we want them mm -hmm. to screen patients and co-manage patients. So it really does take a, a take a village to care for these patients. That's very helpful. Um, you know, sort of kind of along those lines as it takes a village, you know, let's talk about helping your patients, um, you know, with adherence and making sure they're able to follow their care plans. What, you know, one to two pieces of advice do each of you have or things that you do to help your patients uh, be adherent to their care plans or help help them stay on top of their care? Sure. I, I think, first of all, it starts with education. We need to educate them about the disease. We need to educate them about the serious nature of the disease, you know, in, in a way that they understand why it's so important to get to, to be consistent with their care. Uh, we need to educate them about the medications and let them know what side effects to expect, but then to reassure them that we have teams to help manage them through the side effects. And this is where the, the multidisciplinary team comes into to play because our nurses spend a great deal of time with these patients, helping them you know, coach them through the medications, the side effects. And we often have our nurse practitioners do periodic video visits as they're starting the medication to just help them manage, titrate more appropriately for that patient. It's it's all highly individualized. Yeah, I would, I would you know, you said it perfectly. I would add your comment about the video visit. You know, obviously this was something that we never did before the COVID pandemic, but it's actually, I think really, is now a really valuable tool in, in maintaining compliance for patients because we can connect with these patients much more frequently to find out how they're doing when we start a medication than previously. I mean, yeah. it's a, a big a positive outcome. Absolutely. No, I, I I definitely think you're right. As a family doctor myself, um, mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've noticed that video visits can make things a little bit easier. So that's your commentary from both of you about how you sort of navigate this is really helpful. Um, we have another question about um, patients with comorbidities. I know you talked to both of you talked about this a little bit in our first question, but this question says, you know, what are some of the key challenges of treating PAH patients um, with comorbidities, and what's your advice for healthcare providers uh, with this and, and dealing with these challenges? Yeah, I mean, I can take that. It's, uh, we talked about it a little bit, but I think, you know, in the 
sort of in the trenches, maybe where the question's coming from, because, you know, the patients that many people see in practice are not the 30-year-old, uh, you know, thin patient with severe pulmonary arterial hypertension, what we used to call primary or now idiopathic PAH, but you see patients who have all these comorbidities. They may have some sleep apnea, they may have the, the obesity, the diabetes. And in some cases, you know, they have pulmonary hypertension. And the question is, you know, really, what do you do with those patients? Um, can't necessarily send all of them to a expert center that may not have access. So how do you work it up? And I think Val kind of said it nicely. It's really a systematic approach. So the first question is, you know, why do you think this patient has pulmonary hypertension? How severe is it? And what are the treatable comorbidities or conditions? So, and for instance, if we see a patient with severe hypoventilation syndrome who's obese, treating that patient with CPAP or BiPAP and diuretics may actually relieve or resolve the pulmonary hypertension. Um, so you need to go through that stepwise approach. What you don't want to do, okay, that's what is throw them on PAH medicine without really understanding what's causing the problem. Yeah, but if I could take it a step further, which yeah. I, I think maybe I interpreted the question as a, a little differently. So let's say you did that workup, mm -hmm. you decide they have pulmonary hypertension that you're going to treat, be it you know a little more gingerly with mm -hmm. one agent or uh, two agents, like what, what do you watch for? And I, I think that's a really important mm -hmm. question because there's lots of data that suggests that those sorts of patients with comorbidities have a blunted response, not that they won't have some response, but they have a blunted response and they have more side effects. Mm -hmm. And so really engaging that nursing team and watching them for side effects, um, helping to manage the medication, um, the, the, often diuretics, oftentimes they have more lower extremity edema as sure. we start these therapies and we need to titrate diuretics a little bit more. I think those are things that you need to be cautious of if you're going to use PAH therapies in those patients, particularly with the cardiovascular comorbidities. Rich, I would throw it back to you. In patients with the pulmonary comorbidities, do you worry about things like VQ mismatch? Like how, how do you monitor for that? Yeah, no, that's another great question. And I think to be honest, it's probably a little bit um, overemphasized in our experience. And there's some data on this that, you know, in the patients, you may have some lung disease and whether that's some COPD or even some pulmonary fibrosis, if they have significant uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension, you know, you probably don't see significant worsening of oxygenation. The concept has been that, you know, you're dilating bad areas of the lung and therefore worsening the VQ matching. That may happen occasionally, but in my experience, not very often, but still need caution because you know, you want to be sure that you're treating the right disease. Uh, group one pH is one exception. There's one therapy in Haltroprosmol, which is approved for group three pH. Excellent. Um, you know, I just wanted to say, I, I appreciate both of your answers to that question, um, taking the question and sort of dealing with it from two different angles. One, from making sure that the, the diagnosis is, is correct and that there's nothing underlying um, that we're missing or causing the pH. The second is what do we do uh, when people are, um, you know, do have a true diagnosis of pH and, and, and have comorbidities. So I appreciate that. Uh, it looks like we just have a couple more questions. Um, what are some important considerations when developing individualized treatment plans for patients with PAH? 
um, how can healthcare providers really work with their patients to tailor their care? Uh, you both did talk about, you know, that it takes a village, multidisciplinary care. Is there anything else that you might add sort of uh, in addition to that with individualized treatment plans? Yeah, I think it's a great question because these patients, they're, they're all highly individualized. And so I think I would make a couple of points and I'm sure Rich will have others. First is we need to talk about what the goals are. You know, what are the patient's goals and try to have them set some goals. You know, maybe they come and they, they can't take care of their kids or they can't go up a flight of stairs. Usually their goal is to have an improvement in their shortness of breath and their ability to function and trying to get an idea of what they want to do in their daily life and it is an important goal. I think we also have longer term goals. Like we wanna make them feel better, but we also want to have them live longer and not need hospitalizations or not get to transplant. So kind of balancing those short and intermediate slash long-term goals is an important part of the conversation, especially as we talk to them about medications, which as we already discussed, all have side effects, right? So, so trying to understand the goals and working together to get to both the short and the long-term goals, I think is very, very important. Yeah, I would certainly um, agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that, uh, you know, the other part of it is, you know, we talk about it, you know, with the patient, like it's really a journey. So you meet them and you start initial treatment. I can't tell them, you know, what their prognosis is. Our goal is to get them as good as possible and make changes along the way. So, you know, sometimes the patients, you know, rightfully so have this, this coming with a lot of fear and you have to allay that. I said, no, this is a very treatable condition. What, what you're reading on the, the internet is likely outdated, inaccurate, and <laughs> and this is you know not universally fatal. You're not going to be dead in three years. These kind of things that the patients come and often that giving them that reassurance is is huge. And then just the concept of you know we make changes as we need to along the way. We've taken the journey together. I love that. That's, yeah. that's excellent. I love the, the piece about the internet because it can be very scary for patients for so many conditions. So uh, absolutely right on about that. And we, in our last two minutes uh, of our Q&A, do either of you or both of you have any final comments or insights that you'd like to share with our audience before we close? Uh, I mean, I think we covered a lot of great important things. If I could highlight a few things, um, one is to make the diagnosis correctly, right? Like, you know, pulmonary hypertension is common. Pulmonary arterial hypertension is actually very, very rare. And the medications that we have for PAH might not be right for patients with other types of pulmonary hypertension. So I think really emphasizing the correct diagnosis is very, very important. And then I think Rich said it nicely, the treatment journey. We have so many therapies available. We need to discuss the patient's goals, start treatments, reassess, risk assess, and then make the, the tweaks along the way. And, and the team is behind them. Good pulmonary hypertension centers have multidisciplinary teams that can provide a lot for the patient. And I think really importantly, work with the local physicians, work with their local primary care provider who needs to stay in the, in the loop. Um, and so really having that, um, that good communication and, and providing a lot of care locally um, but having the resource of the clinic, the pulmonary hypertension clinic, is really a win-win for patients. Excellent, Dr. Yeah, Chan? no, I think all all those things are absolutely important, and I just I just want to emphasize, you know, the fact that that there's more coming, and so, you know, as 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 far as we've come in this disease and this condition and understanding it 
and coming up with treatments, it's this is not stopping. And so, you know, we showed some of the data with the with with Cetatercept, and this is a very exciting time. And we we, I mean, I communicate that to my patients. I think they get that idea that this field is not stopping until you know, hopefully, we're curing pulmonary hypertension sometime in the future. Absolutely. And definitely, definitely an exciting time. So thank you both. This was an excellent discussion. This was a great way to round our discussion on PAH as well. I'd like to thank my colleagues, Dr. Chanik and Dr. McLaughlin for helping us better understand this topic. It was really great speaking with you both today. Great. And nice thank speaking you. with you as well. And another presentation on this topic will take place on June 15th. We welcome you to register and join us again. To those listening to this course, please proceed to claim credit by completing the evaluation through ReachMD. Also through ReachMD, you can get a PDF of the slides, including explanations to the pre and post test questions. You've been listening to a replay of a live broadcast titled Conversations about PAH, latest developments, and key insights for 2023, foundational activity. This activity was provided by AKH and supported by an independent medical education grant from Merck Sharp and Dome Corporation, a subsidiary of Merck and Company Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.